Didn't you just enjoy the, the like the sweet simplicity of his courage in just the gospel 101, his thankfulness in his salvation alone, his willingness to count the cost. And now yep. it's like, I love you, so I'm going to tell the truth. And it was just, it was just simple. There wasn't a lot of complicated parsings. It was like, no, this is what it is. Like, I, that was fresh. huge honor to introduce to everyone Beckett Cook. Uh, Beckett has quite the res- renaissance resume. He's a was a successful writer and actor, was a production designer, working with top photographers, directors in the world on fashion shoots for certainly magazines you would have heard of, ad campaigns. Um, he was also living a homosexual lifestyle and abruptly met Jesus and had, as he put it, a change of affection. So that's also the name of his book, which I heartily recommend to you, A Change of Affection. Uh, read this book. So, so helpful. There's also the Beckett Cook Show on YouTube. There's a podcast. All these things are uh, going to be encouraging to you, informational for you. Uh, but just, just to read to you a paragraph from Beckett's bio on his website, Beckett's goal is to challenge the current cultural narrative about sexuality in general and homosexuality in particular by demonstrating through his personal testimony and biblical truths that yes, homosexuality is still a sin and that following Christ is infinitely more satisfying and joyous. Uh, Amen. So I'm excited for us to learn from and be encouraged by Beckett, his testimony, his thoughts. Also, I just encourage everybody to listen, learn, learn not just from what he speaks, but learn from how he speaks it so that this time together, as we listen and learn, we can grow together in being more and more faithful to Jesus and his word within the challenges of our own context. Um, So again, as Chad said, uh, drop your questions here in the chat. We'll hear from Beckett for a while, and then we'll have a time for some Q&A in the general chat. So that's all I have to say. Becky Cook, take it away. We're so happy to have you. Take it away. Thanks, Matt. It's good to be with you guys tonight. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, West Hollywood right now. Uh, so it's, I don't know, it's like 530 something. <clears throat> so I wanted to start by telling you, just telling you what God did in my life 12, a little over 12 years ago, which was shocking to me, still shocking to me. And, um, and then get into kind of some of my, the common questions I get on this issue and some common just reflections, general reflections I have about this particular issue, uh, biblically, theologically, personally, culturally. So, but first let me tell you a tale, uh, that is amazing. So, uh, yeah, so 12 years ago, I was a gay man living in Hollywood and uh, pursuing everything the world had to offer. And, um, and then I had this unexpected radical encounter with God. But let me rewind. Uh, so, so when I was very young, um, probably fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I realized that um, I was attracted to the same sex. And that that's a very kind of strange phenomenon to happen. And especially in, when I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and I was the youngest of eight kids. 
and um and according to my family according to i grew up in the roman catholic church um and according to my church according to my school according to my peers this was very much forbidden <laughs> it wasn't back you know 30 years ago or whatever no, more than that it wasn't celebrated as it is in our culture today so it was very very much forbidden and taboo so i had to kind of lead this sort of double life in elementary school so on the inside i knew that you know this weird stuff was happening but on the outside i was very social and i was um you know i even went study with girls in seventh and eighth grade and and i you know it was popular and so i kind of had this weird almost it was like a schizophrenia in a way because i i had these dual personalities basically and and then in high school things shifted dramatically because i ended up befriending someone and i went to an all-boys jesuit high school and uh, i ended up befriending someone who was dealing with the same thing. And so one night we were out together at, we were out to, at a club in Dallas. We were, I'm, I was like 15, he was 14. He was a year below me. And uh, we ended up basically coming out to each other, which was that, and that really changed things drastically because suddenly I had someone to confide in we started exploring gay culture together in Dallas. We, we went to gay bars all the time, like practically not every night, but multiple nights a week. I don't even know how we got into these bars. I mean, we looked like we were 12 and we we're, you know, but we were 15, 14. And I remember my first time at this particular club in Dallas that was designed by the famous French designer, Philippe Stark. I was, I walked in, we, I remember walking in there and, you know, there, it's not a gay, it wasn't a gay club. It was a, there was straight people, gay people, drag queens, as they were called. And um, I remember walking in and seeing these people and thinking, wow, like these people get, get me. Like, this is the first, I felt kind of like the first time I was, like I was at home for the first time. And so that was a, a huge thing for me. And, and so it was, as I said, it was really nice to have a best friend in high school where we could you know, to confide and, 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 and we could talk about anything and everything. And, uh, and no one really knew except the two of us. And in high school, as well as college, I, I never really looked at this as an identity homosexual behavior. I never, I, I, I never saw it as a long-term thing. I thought, oh, you know, eventually I'll grow out of this. And, you know, it's kind of a phase and like, I'll, I'll get married to a woman and have a family. Um, so I, I was just kind of, you know, as when you're that age, you just kind of live in the moment. You don't really think that too far in the future. And then the same thing happened in college. I, I went away to college and I, ended up becoming best friends with someone again, who was going through the same thing. We came out to each other, same situation. And so, so again, in college, I had this person to confide in and he con confided me. And so we had this, and, and then we would kind of, you know, sneak off and go to 
to gay bars and and um and again explore gay the gay world and and the gay culture and 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 uh where we were so so that that was um another and again in college i was still very much in the closet no one really knew um maybe a couple people and again it was still very much taboo in college uh, even though I went to a very liberal college, it was still seen as it was still seen as uh, kind of strange and and bad. So then the turn the biggest turning point was after college. I, I moved to Tokyo with my best friend and, from college, and uh, we were both kind of figuring out what we wanted to do with our lives. <laughs> and, I, and I had. Um, I had gotten accepted into different grad schools, <clears throat> excuse me, grad schools. And I, uh, but I didn't, I didn't really want to do either. I didn't know what I wanted to do. He didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. So we're like, let's go to Tokyo. Like that's the best place to figure out life. Um, so we moved to Japan and, um, and while I think it was, we lived in Shibuya, which is like right in the heart of Tokyo. And, right like about eight months into it his he invited his friend to come visit us from texas and um and when that happened that that really changed things because his friend stayed with us for let's let's just call him adam i'm not going to use his real name so adam stayed with us for for like five days in, in our tiny tokyo apartment and by the end of his stay, Adam and I had fallen in love. And, um, and that was the first time that I had ever experienced that. And it, it just completely, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, and that's, that emboldened me to come out to, to my family, to my friends, to everyone. And I, and at that time, I, came to understand, I, I came to understand that this is who I am. This is my identity. It's immutable. This is, this is it. And like, this is my life. And so I was all in after that, I was totally all in for, for this. And, and then, uh, after Tokyo there with that relationship, lasted for a while but when that ended i moved to los angeles and uh when i moved to la i uh i had i i wanted to pursue writing and acting you know the usual stuff which i i do not recommend to anyone to ever do but um so i i, I moved to la and when I got here, I already had a whole set of a network of friends here because my, my best friends from high school had gone to college on the East coast and, and they, their new, their friends from college all kind of migrated to, to the West coast. And so I had this amazing group of friends. Uh, they were all in the business. They all, uh, were writers, producers, actors, directors, and, and uh, they actually, all of those people that my, the, my closest friends, that whole set of friends are now kind of, they run Hollywood now. They, whatever, they produce all the content or create the content 
that you see on Netflix or HBO, not that you watch that, but they, they produce all that stuff and create it and act in it and et cetera. So, and at the time we all, my friends and I, we all wanted the same things. We all wanted to, we wanted three things. We wanted to make it big in Hollywood, which they were doing. And I mean, they were doing super well. I was kind of struggling. And then I ended up in production design as Matt mentioned. But then um, we also wanted to find true love, which, you know, I had, I had gone, I had cycled through, I don't know, five serious, serious boyfriends in LA uh, over the years. And each relationship lasted, it kind of had this shelf life of two years. It was like a two year limit to these relationships. Um, there was always infidelity. Um, and, and so, and then the third thing we wanted was to have sort of these kind of extraordinary experiences. Cause I thought, you know, this is what life is all about. Kind of, you know, having these amazing experiences, finding true love, like doing super well in your career. And we were having these amazing experiences in spades because they, as I said, they were all in the business. And so we were always invited to movie premieres and the Oscars, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, the Grammys, um, the, all the after parties, the Vanity Fair parties, the, the governor's ball after the Oscars. And, and during this whole kind of time in LA, I met everyone, I would, knew everyone, I was friends with all these movie stars and pop stars and, and um, you know, a dinner with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks at the governor's ball after the Oscars and, and, and just like going. And I remember I went to um, the, I went to the Vanity Fair party with Nia Vardalis when she did my big fat Greek wedding. I drove, I went, went with her in her limo to the party from the Oscars. Um, we were kind of friendly at the time, at that time, you know, and then I would, and you know, I find myself in these situations all the time. I, you know, I would be at Prince's house, the singer Prince, and he would perform in his backyard for three hours. And I would just be like, this is insane. Um, and that was kind of my life for, for many, many years from 19, I moved to LA in 1993 till night till. So, so 1993 to 2009, that was my life in LA. It was just this constant, uh, kind of constant shiny objects and chasing these shiny objects and, and, um, and kind of, you know, enjoying a lot of it. But then at a certain point, the law of diminishing returns began to set in. And so that because, you know, and, and, and God, God was never an option to me, because I knew I knew what the Bible, I was under, I was not unaware of what the Bible had to say about homosexual behavior. I, I was aware of that. So I knew God was not an option. So um, I just, I just, by the time, by 2009, I had become a practical atheist because I, by that time I had just, I, I thought, okay, the Bible is a myth like any other ancient myth. Uh, and God doesn't exist. It, I just, I was, I was, I was an atheist and, and, and none of my friends, we not, not one time did any of us ask each other, what do you, do you believe in God? It was just understood that 
God did not exist and that it was a fairy tale. Um, and so we, we never discussed God, God and, and none, no one in LA I, I came in contact with ever discussed God. And so, uh, and then in 2009, I was at Paris fashion week in March of 2009. And that's, that's kind of when this all came to a head. I had gone, I, I used to go to fashion weeks in New York and Paris a lot because uh, I just had a lot of friends in the, in the industry and I was always invited every season. And so this year I was in Paris and I was, um, I went to a bunch of the runway shows. I went to a lot of, they all have after parties. You go to the after parties, it's the whole thing. And then this one night I was at an after party at this club called Regine in the middle of Paris. And I, uh, I was sitting with these two people from Rachel Zoe and her husband, Roger, they were, she was on this Bravo show, this, uh, she was like, a, she had her own TV show. And, and everyone from the fashion world was there. And Kanye West was there. All these people were there dancing, drinking champagne, like having the, the times of their lives. And, and at that point, because of the, the law of diminishing returns, which I had mentioned, um, I just had this moment of, is that all there is? Like, is this all there is to life? Like, I, you know, this stuff has sustained me for so many years, but I, it's not going to do it anymore. And what is going to do it? And I, I complete, I felt this overwhelming sense of emptiness and I was in a panic about my life and about my future because I, I thought, what am I going to do for the, for the rest of my life? I can't just, I can't just keep going to like fashion parties and to dinner parties and to Ariana Huffington's house and uh, for cocktail. Like, I can't keep this is not satisfying anymore. Like it was really fun for a long time. Even since high school, I was doing this kind of stuff. And it's, it's, I, I had a good run, you know, but it's like, I just felt this total and utter emptiness. And so I, I left the party without saying goodbye to anyone. I just ghosted and went back to my, the apartment I had rented in the Marais of Paris, in Paris. And I, uh, I was up all night. I was up all night thinking about my future, just thinking like, what am I going to do? And again, God was not an option for me. And so, and over the years, I had always, I mean, obviously you want to know, everyone wants to know the meaning of life. I mean, if they're thinking, so I always wanted to know the meaning of life, but I, I always looked at, I looked for it in different places and like the theater, I would go to the theater in New York and London all the time to the really serious plays thinking that that was going to give me some sort of, you know, insight into the meaning of life. I would go to museum art museums all the time in New York, Paris, London. And, uh, and I, and that to me, going to these, these museums was almost like a religious experience. It was like the, a, a temple in a way, because I, you know, whenever I would go to MoMA or the Met or the Tate, the Tate Modern in London or whatever, I would walk in and just feel when I would look at the, the paintings or the artwork or the sculptures, and I would feel this kind of sense of awe. And, and that to me almost was like a religion to it, to me. And, um, 
so anyway, I, I, so I, and I also, you know, I read Russian novels and thought, you know, Tolstoy certainly has some understanding of the meaning of life, which he did actually in Anna Karenina. Uh, one of his characters becomes a Christian, Levin. Uh, so, but, you know, I just, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I got back to LA a few days later and I got really busy with work again. And I, um, I kind of put all that stuff on the back burner because I sort of, you know, when you're, when you're working in production design, it's just your whole, you, your whole focus is on that. So I, I didn't, I kind of forgot about that. And then as God would have it, six months later, I'm with my best friend who, um, who is gay and this is in September of September. This is September, 2009. So I'm with my best friend and we, every weekend we, we had the same rhythm, the routine, we would go to brunch in Venice. Um, and then we would go shopping in Beverly Hills or West Hollywood, which is gay church brunch and shopping. That's what gay church is. And our temple was Barney's in Beverly Hills. And, and then we'd go to this coffee place on the East side in Silver Lake. And it, it was called Intelligentsia. It's still there. But this particular weekend, we were there and we were just chatting and having our cappuccinos. And while we're talking, the we noticed out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, what is... And sitting next to us is a table of young people, probably five, I think it was about five people. And they had Bibles, physical Bibles on the table, on in front of them. Like there were five Bibles on the table, which I had never seen a Bible in public in LA. So that was a shocking sight. And for my friend too, who had, you know, grew up in New York, you know, from a Jewish family, he, it was, we were both just like stunned, like what is happening? And so we, my friend liked to engage in controversial conversation. So he kept prodding me to talk to them. And I was like, no, I don't want to talk to them. And finally, I just, I was like, okay, I will. So I turned around and I said, I mean, this is like, I, I always say this, this is like a, a Christian's fantasy come true. It's like a, a, an atheist turning to them saying, hey, what's the gospel? Are you guys Christians? Um, so I literally, I turned around and I said, I asked them, I said, are you guys Christians? Like, what's the deal? And they're like, yes. And I said, and they, they told me that they were evangelical Christians and that they went to this church in Hollywood called Reality LA. Um, and, and I, you know, we, we had a really nice conversation and I, and of course I get to the $64,000 question and I said, you know, well, what does your church in Hollywood believe about homosexuality? And they said, well, we believe it's a sin. And I was like, okay. And I, I was, I, I expected that answer. What was, I was, I wasn't surprised what I, I was surprised by my response to their answer, because a year before that, five years before that, 10 years before that, I would have been like, okay, you guys are insane. You need therapy and I'm leaving now. But because of that night in Paris, six months before I was open to hearing something different. And I had this moment of what if God does exist? I mean, there's a slim chance. There's a thin read of a chance that God exists. And what if 
homosexual behavior is a sin? And what if I built my entire life on a false foundation and I don't know it? And so they invited me to their church the following Sunday. And I, and I said, look, I don't know, you know, I was with my friend, my best friend. So it was very awkward. And so I was like, I don't know, just give me the address and I'll think about it this week. And um, so I had a whole week to kind of mull it over and uh, the following Sunday rolls around and I, and I honestly didn't know if I was going to go or not because it's a big deal. It's like, you're kind of like betraying your people if you go, especially to an evangelical church. Cause uh, for, for the gay community, evangelicals were enemy number one, they, they were the enemy. And so, uh, so it was, it was going into enemy territory and, um, and so the following Sunday rolls around and I, I just woke up and I said, I guess I'm going to do this. And so I got in my car. It felt like a Tesla that just drove me to this, this church. Uh, it felt like I had no control over the, the, the car. So I, I drove to Hollywood and it meets in a high school auditorium, which was surprising to me. It was my first time at an evangelical, at a, at a Protestant church. Um, so I was used to, you know, stained glass windows and smoke and bells and vestments and hats and all these things. And, and, and this was just like a, a plain high school, LA USD high school auditorium. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is so simple. And I like, I like that. I like that about this, um, that there, it's not like dressed up for something. And so so then I walked into the auditorium, the worship band was playing and I immediately cringed. And I, cause I was like, oh, I forgot, I forgot Christian music existed. This is weird. And then I was like, no, it's actually nice. It's really beautiful. And then I found my seat. I just sat near the front by myself. And, the, and then after the worship time, the pastor came out and he started preaching for an hour on Romans chapter seven. He was in the book of Romans for two years. And this was, this was where he was that day. And so he's preaching while he's preaching on Romans seven, I, this str strange things start to happen to me. I start to every word that he's saying, every sentence that he's saying is resonating as truth in my mind, in my heart. And I don't know why. And I'm like this, and I was literally on the edge of my seat, riveted to the sermon. And I didn't want him to stop talking. Um, even after an hour, I was like, just keep talking. What? And it was turning everything I thought religion was on its head. And I was like, this is the gospel? Like, how come I've never heard this before? And I was like, this is good news. So it... Um, so then after the sermon, he said, you know, there's people, there's people on the prayer ministry on the sides of the auditorium. If you need prayer for anything, uh, you can ask for prayer. And then there's another 30 minutes of worship time. And so that was another moment of like, do I go over there? If I do, the people that who invited me here might be watching and this could be awkward, but I was like, whatever, I'm here. So I walked up to this stranger and I, who was on the prayer team. And I said, I, again, a Christian's fantasy come true. I said, 
hi, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. And he said, well, let me pray for you. And he laid hands on me and prayed for me. And um, I just remember thinking like, how does this random straight guy, like, why is he so loving towards me? And why does he care about me so much? And, uh, and so it was a really powerful prayer. I thanked him. I went back to my seat and there was 25 more minutes of worship music, but I, so I sat down, everyone else was standing and singing. And as soon as I sat down, the Holy Spirit, God revealed himself to me in that moment. It was like a road to Damascus moment. God just, it was like the Holy Spirit just, just completely flooded me. And God, in my mind, God said, I'm God. Jesus is my son. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The Bible's true. Welcome to my kingdom. And I just immediately started bawling uncontrollably for the next 25 minutes. And I, uh, I was crying so hard that people were concerned about me and we're going to, they were going to call a medic. Uh, but I was crying harder than I'd ever cried in my life. I, it's, other than when I was an infant, but it made sense because I was just born again in that moment. And, and I just remember just like all of that, the meaning of life, it was like the curtains parted and I could, I knew the truth. I was like, the, I know the meaning of life now. This is crazy. And I was crying. I was crying for two reasons over the conviction of sin. Um, and also just the joy of meeting Jesus. <laughs> I was stunned by, it. I was just like, I can't believe it was so just overwhelming and I, I couldn't. And so I just was crying and crying and crying. And then after the service ended, I came home and I got into bed to take a nap. And cause I was uh, so freaked out by everything. And I, I, and then it, and it's like Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock and God passes by with his glory. Like again, God is like, let me show you some more of my glory. And I just immediately burst into tears again. And I just was like, whoa. And it's like Isaiah in the, when he's in the temple and he sees the holiness of God and he just like falls apart. And I, I jumped out of my bed and I said, God, you have my whole life. I'm yours. I'm done. I'm your, I, I, this is it. And I knew in that moment, I knew that, that homosexuality was not my identity. I knew that dating guys was no longer part of my future, but I didn't care because I just met Jesus. And I'm like, I'm going with that guy. Like, forget those guys, good riddance to that life. And I, and I, I knew that, um, that that wasn't who I was. And I it wasn't a part of me. And um, and that was September 20th, 2009. I'm still blown away today. And I think of Paul when one of my one of the verses that really, especially early on that really resonated with me is Philippians three, verse eight, when Paul says, you know, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And, uh, and that's how I feel. I mean, cause I lost over the years, I lost a lot of friends and especially when my book came out and then I lost my career when in 2019, when my book came out, I got like completely black, like blacklisted in Hollywood. Uh, so, 
but I, again, it doesn't matter because I'm in the kingdom of God, which is, you know, kind of an amazing thing. And, oh, also I have eternal life, which is pretty cool. Um, so now I want to turn to some common things that, common questions I get and, uh, and see, and then, and then also, you know, just some reflections I have on, on this whole thing. Um, so God had so much grace on me that day. I mean, I knew that it just, it just, it's stunning to me that he had so much grace in terms of, I knew immediately that this was a sin, that homosexual behavior is a sin. I knew instantly and that I knew it wasn't my, I knew that it wasn't going to be a part of my future ever again. And I didn't care. Um, and so that, I mean, that was just God's grace. Cause it was so powerful. And my, 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 um, my conversion was so intense that it was just, it was amazing. It just was like, I, when Paul says, Oh, I once knew a man who was caught up in the third heaven. Like that's, it felt like that. It felt like I was like caught up in the third heaven, like Paul for like two seconds. And it was like this intense uh, encounter with God. But so these are some of the questions that I commonly hear, um, obviously born this way or, you know, well, aren't, you know, aren't you born that way? And like, if you're born that way, God doesn't make mistakes. And, you know, why would God hold you accountable for something that you can't help? Well, there's a number of things I can say about that. First, just because Lady Gaga says you're born this way doesn't mean it's true. But um, there's, there's a several theories on, uh, on why someone has same-sex attraction. And one is genetic. There's a genetic component. Possibly there's also a hormonal in utero component and possibly an environmental component. And no scientist knows the answer. No one knows what causes this really. Um, but it's all a moot point because we're all not only born in sin, but we're conceived in sin, according to the word of God. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> we're all, every human is born with innate sinful impulses. That doesn't mean we are to act on those impulses. And so, um, and, and the idea I mean, it's all because, because of the fall, obviously we're corrupted. Our, not only our minds are corrupted, our genetic coding is corrupted. I mean, obviously there's, it's clear from re reality. It's like there's birth defects. Um, so we're all born in sin. We're all conceived in sin. And so that is a moot point. And, you know, over, and it's a, it's a very um, Freudian this, I mean, this is like a, a very Freudian thing. It's, it's a, from his kind of Freud's theories and, and thought we have, cause his whole kind of his uh, philosophy basically, or his theory is that human beings at their core are sexual beings. So, so from Freud, from, you know, 19th century Vienna to, to now it's become an identity. This has become an, a, a, a full-blown identity. It's not just a behavior. So it's gone from a behavior to 
an identity over the last, let's say, 50 years. And it's gone from a sin to a sacrament um, over the last 50 years. So um, the second one, another question I get often is, can you be gay and Christian? And so one of the things that's, that's different about this particular sin issue is that it is an identity. It's become an identity in our culture. And, and I get it. I mean, I thought that was who I was to the core. I believe that fully. I fully be- embraced that, believed it. My, all my friends believed it. And so, and I went to gay pride parades all the time in New York and LA and San Francisco. Like this was my life and for 20 years. And so, um, but this issue is the sin issue is different. It's I put it in my book. I talk about how it's the same, but different. <laughs> it's the same because it's a, it's a sexual sin and sexual immorality is, is, uh, is very, it's always kind of on the top of the vice list in the new, T- new Testament epistles. Um, but it's different in that it's become this identity. And so there's gay pride parades, but there's not greed pride parades or gossip pride parades or adultery pride parades. So, so it's a very difficult to untangle this issue. And it's very difficult to untangle the sin from this kind of this, uh, this quote unquote identity. Um, And in fact, I I think this only the holy, I mean, the reason it was easy, the reason it happened to me was because of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so people, I mean, people ask me, a, a friend of mine, after I got saved, I explained to her, she's Jew, culturally Jewish. And I told her my, my whole story, explained to her what the gospel was, explained to her about, you know, what salvation is. And she said, she asked me, okay, so Beckett, now that you're saved and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and why can't you now go and date a guy? And I was like, well, because I'm in a relationship and it's like, it's almost as if like, I, it's like being in a a married relationship, you know, having a spouse being married and, and then just cheating on your wife. It's like, oh, I'm in this relationship, but now I'm just going to go cheat on my wife. And and also because, and I told her, I mean, at the time I didn't, I didn't have uh, these kind of, I didn't have enough of a foundation in, in scripture. I mean, I, when I got right after I got saved, I was just, I was obsessed with the word of God. I couldn't stop reading the Bible. And I remember reading it and just every word, just jumping off the page to me, like, whoa, like, I can't believe this is true. And I can't believe I'm a part of this whole story of redemption and this is insane. I, and I was, I just consumed the Bible. Uh, I, I mean, I must've read the Bible in, I don't know, a month or something. I was obsessed with it. And, and I just listened to tons and tons of sermons, uh, every night, uh, several sermons a night. And I would just end up in tears. I'd be like, I can't believe this is true. And that I'm in this kingdom. Like, this is crazy to me, but so I, um, so the, the idea of being a gay Christian, first of all, I, and, uh, you know, I talk about this in my book. It's like, I, 
I never identify myself as a gay Christian, you know, because even if you're a chaste person who happens to have same sex attraction, um, I think it's very unhealthy, unhelpful and damaging to still call yourself a gay Christian. It's like, you're holding on to your old man. You're holding on to this weird identity. That's, that's sinful. And so I would, I would never call myself a gay Christian, but in terms of practicing, uh, being, um, engaging in homosexual behavior and being a Christian, the, it's like a square circle. You, you can't do that. It's like an elder, elderly baby, as Dick Lucas would say. But I, I just want to read John, First John, chapter three. There's a couple of verses that I mean. There's so many verses, but I'll just read a couple. Um, but he says, "No one who abides in in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." And then the, this is the last one I'll, I'll just read no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, just kind of, uh, very succinctly, you can't there, you can't be a gay Christian. There's, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, it's like being an adulterous Christian. You can't, the two don't go together. Um, and then a lot of people ask me, you know, I get, I, especially early on when I told my friends about my, my, uh, faith in Christ and, and especially when I told them the part about, you know, not living as a gay man anymore, they were like, eh, that's so unfair. Like, why can't you be with someone you love? And why that doesn't make any sense. And, um, and, you know, don't you feel like you're che- you're being cheated out of, you know, a life partner? I'm like, well, first of all, I do. Ha- I have a relationship with the king of the universe, Jesus. Uh, so I'm not alone. I'm in this, I'm in the most amazing, all-consuming, fulfilling relationship in the universe. Like there's no other relationship that's better. And, um, Secondly, I've, I've never seen my life as I've never felt like, like my life's unfair. <laughs> I feel the opposite. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world that God plucked me out. I mean, I have to be careful because my neighbor is gay uh, and he's, he's right there. But anyway, God plucked me out of there's hundreds of thousands of gay people in, in LA and West Hollywood where I live and God plucked me out of darkness and then pulled me into his light. And so I never feel like anything's unfair. I, I feel like the, again, like the luckiest guy in the world that I get to be in the kingdom of God, that I get to have a relationship to Christ, that I'm reconciled to God through Christ, that I'm reconciled with my creator, that I have eternal life. And, and I always say this, I, I mean, I, I sound like a broken record, but what's unfair is that Jesus had to be beaten, tortured, and crucified for my sins. That's unfair. My life, not unfair. His, that was unfair. Um, and so I never, ever feel 
like I'm missing out on something or that I'm being cheated out of something, I have the most, uh, I mean, this is what I was created. This is what we're created to be is in relationship with our creator. And so I feel, and I think of Paul and, um, and, uh, second Corinthians 11, let me just read that. Cause I, cause Paul was just, you know, he had a pretty tough life. Right. And, um, and I don't think he thought his life was unfair. Um, the, he's in second Corinthians 11 verse, or yeah, 11 verse 24 through 27. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And so Paul was single. Jesus was single. I don't think Paul thought his life was unfair. All Paul cared about was running around the Mediterranean, planting churches and spreading the gospel. That, that's all he cared about. He was consumed with that. And um, yeah, and so this, the, this, we obviously, we live in a time and place in history and culture where expressive individualism is the thing, the norm of the day. And, and so we, we have this sense of entitlement, this sense of, you know, if my, I must have these certain things in my life to be fulfilled, I have to have a house and a car and a, and a mate, not, not just a job, but a, a job, a career that I love, like, and I have to have, you know, a, a relationship and I have to have all these things and, and then I'll be satisfied. But as we know that, that, uh, those are empty, uh, those are empty, um, they're empty things. Um, and, I think of Paul also in second Corinthians, he's, he says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, which leads to the next question. Doesn't God, and I get this all the time. Like, doesn't God want you to be happy? I'm like, okay, first of all, happiness is fleeting. It's overrated. And it's, it's not a biblical, like, um, my life before, Christ BC was my, my happiness was always based on my circumstances. My circumstances were constantly changing. They're always in flux. My, my relationships were always quid pro quo. I was, it was like constant walking on eggshells because it was like, especially for gay men, this is the dy dynamic. It's like, as long as you are in shape, and you have a great job, then we're good to go. But as soon as something slips, uh, I'm out. Like now that, that's especially in LA and <laughs> New York. Like that's, that's the kind of uh, tacit understanding that no one talks about. But um, so happiness is overrated. But I have this joy that is so I feel like I, I talk about this. I have this, like, it feels like a layer of joy in my gut that is impenetrable and indestructible. And it's always there, no matter, you know, how hard the day is, how difficult the season of life is. 
you know, and I like my life's not easy. You know, I, I, I still struggle with stuff and, um, yeah, but it's like, I have this joy that's always there and it never will go away. And so, uh, so that's, and by the way, all the apostles were, you know, martyred except John, who was sunbathing on Patmos and writing revelation. Uh, but, but yeah, it's like, there, you know, there were not promised happiness. I mean, in fact, Jesus promises the opposite. He's, and, and Peter, you're going to go through trials and life is going to be difficult and you're going to be persecuted. Jesus, like, they're going to hate you because they hated me first. And uh, so, so yeah, happiness is overrated. And then, um, one of the things that kind of a, a bigger sort of meta question, I guess, is, is like, why does God care about our sex lives? And I, I, I mean, this is kind of a lot, I'm going to give a really brief answer to this, but why does God even care about who I sleep with? Like what? And it's, well, God kind of knows what he's doing. <laughs> he, de- he created us, he designed, he created sex, sex is good but he created sex to be expressed within a certain context between one man, one woman, and one woman in a covenant for life. And there's a very specific purpose to that and a reason. And anything outside of that leads to pain, suffering, destruction, either temporally or eternally or both. And in my life, after I got, became a Christian, um, after I came to faith, I didn't, I didn't fully understand how much emotional scarring I had from all of the boyfriends I went through and all the one night stands and all this and that, like, but I realized, wow, like I've, I, I've, I have all this kind of emotional scarring from, from all that. And God loves us. He wants to, he wants us to flourish. And this, that design that he set up is uh, helps human beings flourish the most. And I think about my dad, when my sisters were in high school, they would sneak out of their window to go see their boyfriends. They shared a bedroom and they would go sneak out and, and who knows what they were getting up to. But my, my dad, I remember seeing him nailing their window shut and, and I, when I was a little kid, I was like shocked at that. And, but it's like, why did my dad do that? Was he a tyrant? Was he just a bully? No, he did it because he loved my sisters and he wanted what was best for them. He, he cared about their well-being. And that's how, I mean, times infinity, that's how our heavenly father is. He cares about our well-being and he knows that premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex, all leads to pain and suffering and, and, um, and destruction. And so, um, people ask me if I still experience same sex attraction and I just to be very, um, I guess I'll, I'll just very quickly, I'll just say that, you know, first of all, does I, I when people ask me that, I'm like, well, do you still struggle with temptation uh, or any indwelling sin? And um, 
But I have to say that when I was living as that life, sexuality dominated my thought life. And now I rarely think about it. And it's, it's so minimal um, that it's, I mean, I'm not attracted to women at this point in my life, but, um, but again, I'm happy to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Christ and, and be chaste and, and, and single for the rest of my life. I don't care. Like that's perfectly fine with me. And, and when Paul, you know, prays that the thorn in his flesh to, for, for the, his thorn to be removed, God basically says, no, my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in weakness. And, and that's, that's exactly the same case. Like God's grace is enough for me. Like I, that's plenty. I don't need anything else. Um, so a um, couple, couple last things. Um, people often say, you know, isn't it unloving to, to believe that, to, to say that homosexual behavior is wrong? And isn't it, you know, to not ally yourself with the LGBTQ community? Isn't that, you know, unloving and mean? And it's like, no, actually it's the opposite. It's like the most loving thing you can do is to tell the truth, obviously in um, telling, you know, with grace, but I, the, those, those Christians at the coffee shop told me the truth. And I was, I'm so grateful to them that they, they told me the truth. I'm so, I'm so glad that they didn't try to dodge the question and sort of be like, well, we don't really know. It's like whispered in the Bible. We're not really sure. No, they were just like, yeah, it is. And I love, I, I just, I, I like honesty. I just do. I, I've always liked honesty. And so um, Leviticus 19 verse 17 says, uh, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So in other words, loving your neighbor means telling your neighbor the truth, obviously not in a like mean way or, you know, but, um, because it's like, it, people, you know, call, call it hate speech, but it's actually, it's love speech because, and, and I tell, I, at the end of my book, I talk about this. It's like, the only reason I wrote the book is because I love people. Like, that's it. That's the only reason that's, I have no other motivation uh, to, in the second half of my book, because I, I talk about um, reflections on this, but the only reason I wrote that is because I love people because I don't want them to spend eternity in torment. That's kind of a big deal. Like, I, I don't want that to happen to people, anyone. So especially my friends, my old friends and, and my, you know, people I come in contact with, I don't. So loving them is telling them the truth, um, telling them that you, you're not really sure or that, you know, uh, or even worse, that it's, that it's not a sin is, is actually the most unloving thing you can do to another human being. It's absolute. I can't, it's the, uh, yeah, it's, it's the worst thing you can do. Um, and, 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 and then obviously the culture we live in is so powerful right now. It's 24 seven. We're just, constantly there's this onslaught of indoctrination 
um, and it's been going on for years, but especially in the last, let's say 10 years, it's gotten, it's been ratcheted up. So to such an extreme place. And again, I'll, several of my friends create the shows that like Will and Grace and uh, Sex and the City, all those shows. I, I know those guys, I know all those gay guys, uh, was friends with them. My, one of my good friends wrote the movie Milk about Harvey Milk and, and he won an Oscar. Um, so the, and I used to, when I used to write stuff in Hollywood, I, it was always gay themed. I, cause I thought I was, I thought I was helping people. I thought I was helping people open their minds and, and, and what we have, you know, what we have to understand about the culture is, you know, everything that all the content that comes out of Hollywood is coming from someone in the dark. It's being created by some people in the dark. They don't know the truth. So they're writing from a place of darkness from a secular humanist point of view. And so we have to, um, and I always say, like, if you've watched an hour of Netflix, you just didn't lie to implicitly or explicitly for an hour. And now you need to <laughs> read the Bible for an hour to renew your mind and your heart. Um, and it's like, we're, uh, Dick Lucas says this, I love this. He, we're, we're either giving into the pressure of the world or the pressure of the word. There, there, we're never just neutral. We're never just kind of like, oh, floating along. No, there's always something coming at us. So it's either the world or the word. And I, on this stand to reason tour I just did, I, I tell these kids, I'm like, the world is going to lie to you for the rest of your natural life. You were now, so you have to decide now, are you going to believe the world? Or are you going to believe the world? Uh, are you going to believe the world or believe the word? Like those are the two choices. It's not complicated. This is the plumb line. This is the truth. This is the plumb line of truth. It's like, you can believe the lies of the world, but that's going to, um, that's going to lead to destruction and, um, or you can believe the word, which will lead to life. So, um, and then a, a couple, just one, uh, oh, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is just, this is just, yeah, I just think of my classmates and from Jesuit and Ursuline and when I was in high school, when we were in high school, they all, without exception, every single person in my high school believed homosexual behavior was wrong and was a sin, a hundred percent. 30 years later, some of those very people post rainbow flags on their social media are gay affirming. And I'm like, Hmm, gee, I wonder what's happened over the last 30 years. Did God's word change or did the culture change? And so we have these blind spots, you know, and we're, we're completely unaware of the power of persuasion of the culture and storytelling is so persuasive. And so if we're imbibing TV shows and movies that, that celebrate this issue, then it's going to eat away, chip away at our convictions on this issue, on this, uh, on homosexual behavior. Um, and so the, my, some of my, my final thoughts are, this is nothing new. Satan's been lying since the garden. He twisted God's word in the garden. He said, did God really say you can't? 
I don't know. And then he's doing that with this issue to today. He's like, did God really say that homosexual behavior is not a sin? Or did, did God really say homosexual behavior is a sin? And, uh, and he's winning this battle and he's, he's thrilled. He's not going to win the war, but he's, he's thrilled because he's, he's got not only the culture deceived, not only the entire Western world deceived, He's got people in the church deceived and he's laughing all the way to the bank. He's thrilled to death, literally, that everyone is deceived on this issue. And, and, you know, we can have endless debates on this issue, but it's like, is that what you really want your life to be? Is that what, what it means to be a new creation in Christ is to have endless debates on this? Or do you want to submit to the truth and submit to God's word and, and just, instead of, you know, looking at God's word and critiquing it, letting it critique you. Um, and so it's, it's, this life is a mist. It's a vapor. As the Bible says, it goes away very quickly. And, you know, it's like, what do you want your life to be? And when you meet Jesus on the last day, what do you want to happen? Do you want him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant or depart from me? I never need like, those are, those are the two options and they're very stark options. And I'm just going to close with uh, a quote from, from Paul and a quote from Jay Gresham Machen. Uh, in second Timothy, Paul says for the time is coming when people will, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And, and uh, Jay Gresham Machen's, his name is so, it's a mouthful, Jay Gresham Machen's uh, book, Christianity and Liberalism, which, which was written and published in 1923, I love this, this quote, he, um, he says, there have, there have been previous great crises in the history of the church, crises almost comparable to this, meaning liberalism. He says, one appeared in the second century, when the very life of Christendom was threatened by the Gnostics. Another came in the Middle Ages, when the gospel of God's grace seemed forgotten. In such times of crisis, God has always saved the church, but he has always saved it, not by theological pacifists, pacifists, but by sturdy contenders for the truth. So back to you, Matt. That's all I got. All right. Thank you so much, Baggett. That was, uh, that was so encouraging, so helpful. Um, just, I've got lots of questions pouring in and, and just as I'm processing them, it seems like there's two, two angles of thought, you know, for us as listeners, um, just to use the bud, buzzwords, evangelical versus progressive evangelical, meaning we believe the Bible's God's word, uh, we think sex belongs in heterosexual marriage, progressive meaning, well, um, affirming or, uh, and, and all the rest. So, so in these, 
these challenges as we see them, you know, for, for evangelicals, I think everybody on this Zoom call, we would agree we don't want to be hateful. We would agree that's been a mistake in the past. Uh, we want to reject those those things. We want to reject self-righteousness. But there's also there's also a shyness we're dealing with in the evangelical church. And uh, you know, just just listening to you talk, I mean, this it shines like a light. Your 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 sense of just joy and kind of Christianity 101, that you've been saved by grace, that you're a member of the kingdom of God, that you're happy to take up your cross, even in the difficulty. What would you, what would you say to uh, evangelical church leaders or, or people who have influence in a denomination who are kind of, kind of shy, kind of slow to maybe take a stand in the face of a progressive movement in that denomination. Chad, you got to let us unmute, I think. There you okay, go. Okay, I think I'm, is that good? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I know. I mean, I know it's, it's not easy in today's world to be, um, to be bold about this issue because it, there's, there's, you know, consequences to it. And I mean, I just, well, first of all, I think of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego there. I talk about them in my book, but they, they, um, they were faced with a similar thing, you know, and they basically were, they were commanded by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down, they, basically they were commanded to bow down to culture in Babylon, and we're in exile as well, and and we're being commanded to bow down to the culture. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew they were they were commanded to, and all the officials of the of the provinces were commanded to bow down to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had made, and they were they knew what God's word was and they were unwilling to compromise it by one iota. And they were willing to go into a fiery furnace rather than compromise God's word. And, and Daniel, the same thing in the lines of, but it's like, we have to, it's like, I think of them because it's like, that's the kind of world we're in where we're being commanded and demanded to say things and to do things that are not glorifying to God that are not true. And we have to be willing to go into the fiery furnace, but guess what? You know, there's someone else's in that fiery furnace with us. So, um, and, and I think of them and I think of, um, I mean, even just like, as I just read with, with, uh, that quote from Christianity and liberalism, it's like, we need sturdy contenders for the truth because if if we don't have that in the pulpit and in the as leaders in the church then what happens is and i see this happen in a lot of churches that because this is such a um thorny issue and such a hot topic kind of thing that pastors tend to avoid talking about it and what happens is so it's so in genesis 1 God speaks, right? So God speaks. In Genesis 2, the man speaks. He names the animals, etc. 
And in Genesis 3, the serpent speaks and the man is silent. And so the serpent is able to sow doubt. And that's what's happening in the church now. It's so when you're silent on this issue, it's almost, uh, yeah, yeah, when you're silent on this and years go by in your church and then that that gives the opportunity for Satan to come into your church and sow doubt among the flock. And so suddenly, I mean, I, I guarantee you, if you go to many, many evangelical churches around the country and, and ask the, you know, the, the random Christian on the street, uh, is homosexual behavior a sin? They'll probably say, I don't really know anymore because no one is talking about no one, no one in leadership will address this issue and talk about it. And again, it's not like <laughs> every Sunday you need to address this issue, but you got to do it, you know, every pretty off pretty now and again, because it, because this is the issue trans, all this stuff. These are the issues that the culture is putting forth today. And we have to protect the flock because the flock is susceptible to this and susceptible to, to believing these, the, the lies of, of this, uh, of all of the stuff. And so, um, yeah, I would just say it's, um, and that's why expository preaching is, comes in handy because, you know, when you go through and, and obviously if you're doing expository preaching, don't, don't avoid the books that talk about this issue, like first Corinthians and, and Romans, et cetera. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's so crucial to, and I, I you know, I, I, I even think that one of the simple ways to, to keep kind of keep this in the conversation in your church is instead of using illustrate sermon illustrations about your, your four-year-old daughter and how cute she is <laughs> and how she like pulled her sister's hair. And that's like your example of like a sin issue, just use a sexual, like use something, use this issue as an example of sin. And, um, as an illustration of, of sin, uh, because as you know, as believers, you know, the writer of Hebrew says, exhort one another daily. So we need correction. Uh, Dick Lucas says this, Dick Lucas, by the way, if you don't know him, he's a pastor in London. He, he and John Stott were like best friends. He's 97 years old. He's amazing. But he says, <laughs> He's taught, he did a whole lecture thing on Hebrews and he's like, my dear brother, if you do, do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? We cannot go 24 hours as a Christian without being corrected. It's not striking. Now, so we need the constant, not only the constant reminder of the gospel every, I mean, every day, but the, the constant reminder that, yeah, this we're living in a crazy world and that this, this is a sin. Like it's, it's, it didn't just magically disappear. It's still a sin, as I said. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something that needs to be addressed in a consistent way. Awesome. I, I love how one takeaway for me is just how your joy in your relationship with Jesus um, gives you a willingness to be 
to be gently bold and also willing to pay a cost. One question that came in was, you know, you talk about God's grace and almost just like zap frying you on that day with his goodness. Um, what would you say to somebody, say it's a, a kid in a college group, a teen group, who's, who's feeling like the way you felt when you walked into that bar and said, these people understand me, right? That kind of echo of your heart in finding that identity. Um, what would you say to that person who is, who is just having a really hard time believing that Jesus can satisfy them uh, in the way that you've been talking about? How, how do you approach that person who's kind of, you know, feeling that tension, feeling that pull, and, you're, and you want to persuade them uh, to look to Christ? Yeah, that's a tough one. It's really tough because it's like, you know, um, it's hard. It's almost like, you know, when people talk about, oh, when they're, when people are super, like billionaires and they're like, oh, it, money doesn't satisfy. It's like, well, you kind of have to get to, you have to get to that place to realize that it doesn't satisfy. But um, I mean, that's a really tough one because um I'm trying to think what I would say to to a young person who's going through struggling with same-sex attraction and again I mean it's it's hard to say oh just believe me because I've been there and, and I've done that like I just trust me like I know what what it's all about and I know that it's empty um it's hard for a young person to fully believe that and under, understand that. Um, so honestly, I think, uh, you know, again, kind of giving that, like I said, like in, at the end of what, of what I was talking about, giving the big picture of the laying out the big picture, like this, this life is short it's, it's, it's just, it's a vapor and you, you know, you're young, you're 16, you're 17, you're 18. And you feel like you have this, your whole life laid out in front of you, but you don't know that it could end today. It could end tonight. God, Christ could return tonight. Your life get in you. You might have, who knows what could happen. And so don't assume that your life is going to be, you know, you have like 80 more years left to your life. <clears throat> and um, and, and just, I would try to convey how, as I just did tonight, how knowing Jesus and knowing Christ is so much more satisfying than anything else that this world can give you. And, um, and then I would just, you know, pray for that person. Right, you know, be in prayer for that person because, and have you know, other people who, who, uh, you know, obviously the person would have to uh, trust whoever in the church would can know this information, but have other people pray for that that young person um, about this because it is. I understand it because it is it's something that is, feels, it feels like, it feels like it's you. It feels like everything. 
<laughs> when like when I was understanding that I was attracted to the same sex, like it just felt like this is this is all of me, like it's my desire. And um, so it is really difficult. Uh, it's one of the more difficult things, I think, to to forego, uh, for lack of a better word. But um, yeah, I would just try to I would try to just just show give the big picture and pull back and say look this this life is just i was 20 i was 18 yesterday i'm not 18 anymore like it literally it goes by as you as you all know all you boomers and gen xers um i could see you all know that you were you were in high school yesterday and it goes by really fast so um what do you want your life to be again it's like do you want to be do you want to be the prodigal and and end up in pig slop <laughs> or do you want to just embrace the kingdom and and by the way i i always say that obedience is so there's so much joy in it i before i was a christian i obviously lived in a postmodern world and i didn't know what was right or wrong up or down right or left it was just like i never knew going into situations like, is this wrong? Is it right? I it doesn't, I don't know. And, but now I love, I love that I have boundaries. I love the guardrails. I, I love being obedient to my master because he's a good master. And um, before I was obedient to a really bad master, Satan. And so, uh, and and that was a heavy burden and, and Jesus's burden is light and his yoke is easy. So I don't know. I, I just would try to pull out and, and give the big picture of this. Thank you. Mm. So I'm going to, I'm going to close here in about 10 minutes at seven o'clock and I'll just throw a two headed question at you, maybe a couple of minutes each, each side of it to finish. Um, one is it was just interesting to me listening to your story that progressive or liberal Christianity for some reason never seemed that interesting to you. Um, I didn't hear you say you were going to an affirming church for a while or, and so I guess what I would ask then is, so what would you say to an affirming church leader? Um, and the, that's a big question. So maybe just highlights. And then the, the, the second part of that question would be, you know, as an evangelical, I don't want to be enemy number one to a homosexual. And I know, you know, when you were telling your story, part of that is, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say homosexuality is a sin. So I, I feel like an enemy and I, you, you feel like you're betraying your people to come to my church. How can we as evangelicals, like what's a couple of tips for us to be faithful and winsome and compelling uh, to someone yeah. who is homosexual? So if you could just speak um, to the progressive guy and then to the evangelical person wanting to want wanting to be faithful, we could wrap up with that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I yeah, I was never I always it's I like it's it's funny. I knew instinctively that progressive Christianity, even when I was in that life, I always knew it was uh false. Um I just I just in, instinctively knew that. Um, but what would I say to an affirming church leader? Oh my gosh. 
I don't know, Millstone comes to mind. Um, I would say that's, that is a really, really dangerous place to be, uh, to be affirming, um, because it's, uh, not only you're, I mean, you're leading so many people astray. I think of people like Matthew Vines who, who, who are leading so many thousands and thousands of young people astray and to destruction, to their eternal destruction. And I just think of, wow, like that is, uh, all I can say to that church leader is repent, <laughs> immediately repent, because that is, that's no bueno. Um, and, you know, again, the, the, the scriptures are, I mean, I can, I, I could do a whole exegetical, I, which we don't have time for, but through the scriptures on this issue, but it, it's just so abundantly clear. There's no, it's not wishy-washy. It's the Bible. It's not just the six passages that mention this issue specifically. It's the entire scope from, from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is just so clear of like what the truth is about not only just the truth is and um the bible as i think kevin DeYoung says it's not a handbook on homosexuality but it's it's the greatest love story ever told but and we don't want to miss the forest for the trees but the trees are very important there are six very important trees in the bible and they're very clear and they're not it's not about cultural distance it's not those are all just revisionist lies and um so anyway, I would, I would, uh, yeah, that's a scary place to be is, is to be a leader in a gay affirming church. Um, number two, how to be more winsome. I mean, the thing is you can't really, Jesus, uh, Jesus was the master. If you read, if you, I do this a lot, like I'll read all four gospels in this, in a single sitting and just kind of look at what, how Jesus interacts with people and he never leaves them in their sin. I mean, he, he always calls them to repentance and even the rich young man, he's like, okay. Cause he knew what the, for the rich young man, he knew what, what was his functioning idol, which was his possessions. And he said, Jesus says to him, okay, go sell all your possessions and follow me. And he's like, mm, no. And he turns away and but the woman at the well, he, you know, the, the Levi, the tax collector, when he calls Levi, Levi leaves his tax booth and basically repents of that. He leaves that behind and goes and throws a party, um, which is a, always a sign of repentance in, in the gospels. And, and so um, the thing about enemy number one is, is the gospel is um it's always going to be uh difficult because it, it is it's it, it's it's exclusive and and it makes it makes very exclusive claims and so that's why that's why according to what when i meant what i was saying about evangelicals being enemy number one it wasn't progressive Christians weren't enemy number one. 
Episcopalians weren't enemy number one. Roman Catholics weren't enemy number one. It was evangelicals, really, because because of the their the the how evangelicals uphold the authority, veracity, and sufficiency of Scripture, and um, so uh, that it's kind of like in a way you can't really avoid that. Um, but <clears throat> you can be, you know, you can be gracious. Um, and again, Jesus was, he hung out with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, but again, he didn't, <laughs> he always, he did that in an effort to call them to repentance. And so, uh, so yeah, it's going to be, it's always going to be controversial. And, and especially in our culture today, given our culture and given the temperature of it today, if, I mean, even if you just say, I believe the word of God to be inerrant and authoritative, you're immediately going to be called a bigot and you're going to a homophobe or transphobe, you know, it's like those. And so there's, it's almost unavoidable to, to, to try to, um, you know, be the nice guy and be winsome. Uh, but obviously we have to strive to be as winsome as we can without compromising the truth. That's the thing. It's like grace and truth have to go together. You can never separate them. Um, and when you separate them, there's problems on both sides. So, uh, and so, yeah, I think um, read the Gospels. And really, I, I would just look at what, again, just read the Gospels and see how Jesus interacts with people and what he does. And, and just focus on that when you're reading through. And because um, he, he he's a master. He's a master of balancing grace and truth, obviously. Yeah. 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 You know, what's standing out to me is, as I listen to you, is kind of it seems like the same message we need to tell ourselves and it's the same message we want to say to the world and that's count the cost because it's worth it you know mm -hmm. uh, you, you told us that what you learned in your heart was he's worth it and as we want to find our boldness and count the cost he's worth it and then even if we're talking to um someone who's in the homosexual lifestyle or or tempted by it we're, we're still saying that same thing count the cost he goes, he's worth it, right? Jesus is worth it. So I so appreciate that, that message that you gave us tonight. Hey, everybody, it's, uh, it's seven o'clock. So we've exhausted our time. This has been wonderful. I, I would love to do this all day, but uh, we will wrap it up here. So let me just close in prayer. And then I think, uh, I think Chad has a couple announcements. But one last time, Beggett, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. This is so helpful. Thank you, guys. I appreciate right, it. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, just everybody listening tonight who's or who's going to listen, Lord, just uh, excite us again with what we heard from our brother, uh, just the glory that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we're privileged beyond belief to know Jesus and be children of God. Let that joy just fill us, Lord, an, an unpenetrable, unpenetrable joy, like Beckett said, Lord, and as leaders, give us courage to just say the truth with a smile on our face, with humility in our hearts, 
for love for you, love for our neighbor. Lord, help us to stand up and confront those who have denied and are leading others astray and, and denying your word. And then help us love that, that outsider like Jesus did. Make us like him, Lord, full of grace and truth. Uh, so we thank you for this time. We pray that you'd write the truth we've learned on our hearts and it would be, be carried with us, Lord, for your glory. And we ask for your, your blessing on Beckett and his further ministry. We thank you for him and for what you're doing with his life. And we pray you just continue to use him uh, in greater and greater ways for your glory and encourage him, Lord, protect him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.